Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gallery and Interwoven Journeys, the Michael Abbott Collections of Asian Art here in the Lower Melrose Wing. And I hope that some of you had a chance to come to the symposium, the book launch and symposium this weekend for Interwoven Journeys, which has been the work of two years by James, Bennett, and myself, co-editors, and also 32 authors, 38 essays. It's the biggest book the gallery has ever produced, I've heard. Hopefully that stands for more than a month. But it's an exceptional tome, and it represents an amazing amount of research about Michael Abbott's collection, which makes up about 20 to 25% of the Asian art collection here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Monumental. You know, Michael's been donating since 1976, almost 50 years. Uh, he's not only donated here, but around the country. So he must be one of the Australia's most profound donors. And particularly here, his donations in recent times, the importance of them have come to light. James gave a great talk. James Bennett, the former curator here, soon to be adjunct lecturer in Mataram University in Lombok, amongst his many titles, gave a great talk about the batik in the room previous to this, the blue and white batik, which has been dated to being the oldest complete Javanese batik in the world. And it's only after 10 years of diligence and research and dating that we realize this. And what this means is for, it's not just important for us, it's important for everybody who's interested in Indonesian art in the world because it expands the scope of what people thought was available to research in terms of textiles and expands the scope of what is potentially possible for other related media during that Majapahit era as well. Michael also gave us these two doors. Uh, you see next to the Rahwana and Wilmana sculpture from Bali as well, which date to 15th, 16th century. So again, putting them within this period where nobody thought much survived. And so it gives us new evidence of what this period may be. And hopefully further research down the, down the track will, uh, will reveal many different things from these wonderful gifts. And today I'm going to talk about this rather large and wonderfully imposing cloth depicting the Ramayana, which was created on the Coromandel coast on, in East India, circa 1740-1750, transported through Batavia, Jakarta, as we now know it today, and most likely ended up somewhere on an island in Indonesia. Now, we have actually in the collection as well another half, which actually uh, Michael found in Lombok. Uh, so we know that these were penetrating deep into Indonesia and having an, an influence on local people's beliefs and reiterating their beliefs in a very in a, a ceremonial fashion. The Ramayana, of course, is the great epic of Rama, an incarnation of Vishnu. And it's one of the great stories, Sanskrit epics from India, which pervades Southeast Asia and even extends all the way to Japan. It is one of those great Sanskrit epics, like the Mahabharata, which underwrite and influence continually culture in Southeast Asia, and particularly in Bali, which is one of the great Hindu populations, remaining Hindu populations in the world. The Ramayana is not simply a story. It's not simply Red Riding Hood. It's actually a very important didactic story about what it means to be a good leader, what it means to be a good warrior, and how we go about balancing the universe, ensuring that the universe is in balance, that good and evil are balanced, everything is as it should be, because when the universe gets out of balance is when chaos ensues and things go awry. And so uh, this is what the Ramayana is all about, the story of the Ramayana. And of course, 
As it's descended to us, it comes down in a wonderful narrative, one of which I read all the time. It's great. It's easy reading. It's great fun to read. But uh, back in the day, it was a series of poems, which were then trans transmitted to Java in the 10th century, translated into Javanese, absorbed in a Javanese context. And then Bali becomes the ultimate repository of what's known as the Kakawin Ramayana. So Bali is this great repository of Ramayana thinking and Ramayana belief. And if you go to Bali today, you can stay in the Ramayana hotel. You can probably go to the Ramayana restaurant. <laughs> Ramayana is everywhere. Sculptures of the heroes and so forth are everywhere in Bali. And so while we can't definitely say that this was in Lombok and or Bali, it's most likely it was in one of the islands, was traded to one of the islands and highly revered because it's over, what, 300 years old or so? So it's managed to survive this long in such wonderful condition. And what's more interesting about this, this work is that it contains or has three stamps on it identifying the VOC, the Dutch Trading Company, uh, which was based in Batavia, in present-day Jakarta. It also has a stamp uh, indicating that it was once traded through Jakarta, and then another stamp which has not been uh, fully understood. And so it's an amazing textile. And what's even more interesting is that this textile came in at the same time as that blue and white textile in 2008, when I was just off the boat from America or Japan, and James had invited me in and we started measuring and looking at these things. And so these cloths represent not only the beginning, you know, the, the importance of Michael's collections, but they are the beginning of my life here and the beginning of my life in AGSA. So they're very, there's a very sentimental reason I have an attachment to these. So what is the story of the Ramayana? Well, the Ramayana cloth depicts the great epic ogre, Rahwana, with his 10 heads and his 20 arms. And yes, if you count them, there are not 20, but that's okay. <laughs> On the right is uh, Rama, an incarnation of Vishnu, his brother Lakshmana, uh, and their monkey kind of friends and allies, Hanuman and Sugriva. And on the left, we see behind Rahwana, a series of monkeys and warriors who help him to try and uh, defeat Rama, the great incarnation of Vishnu. And so it's important to remember that this tale isn't simply just about Rama fighting against evil. It's about a kind of cosmic balance trying to be renewed by Vishnu and his consort Sita, who is also Lakshmi, the goddess of kind of learning and knowledge and well-being. So where does the story begin? Well, funny enough, it doesn't begin with Rama. It begins with Rahwana. And it's stated that Rahwana is, is up in the celestial abodes, and he is trying to convince the gods that he should have kind of this immortality. This un, he, he he's essentially cannot be defeated. And what he does is he takes to, to show his obeisance to these gods, he cuts off a number of his heads and throws them in a fire. And each time he does it, he kind of looks up the mountain and says, is that enough yet? Is that enough yet? He's trying to convince them that he is devout enough to become an immortal, essentially. And what happens is they eventually say, ah, Rahwana, we recognize your devotion. You've sent a number of your heads into the fire, and we think that's very wonderful. And he says, I want to be undefeatable by all the gods. But unfortunately, there's always a catch in these stories. It's always a catch. He does not designate that humans cannot defeat him, only gods. And so this is very important. 
And what happens going forward is Rahwana kind of descends into the, the kingdom of Ayodhya and around northern India, northeast India, and he just causes havocs. His rakshasas or ogres are always messing with sages and destroying the forests. And eventually there's a very well-known sage or rishi, Vishwamitra, who comes to the kingdom of Ayodhya in northeast India. And there's a king there, the king of Ayodhya, Dasaratha. And he comes to Dasaratha and he says, look, these rakshasas and rahwana are causing me no end of problems in the forest. Can you do something about this? And the king says, OK, I'm bound to you by my oath. I'm bound to you as being a king and a good ruler, as I should be. And what I'll do is I'll send my two sons, Rama, uh, an avatar, avatar of Vishnu, and Lakshmana, into the forest to defeat these rakshasas and again, restore some kind of cosmic balance. And so unfortunately, he's sad to do it, but he's, he feels oath-bound. He feels he needs to be a good leader, a good king. And he sends Rama and Lakshmana into the forest, where they kind of clean up the, the ogres and so forth and take care of business. And everything is wonderful again. Vishwamitra, in a kind of sign of, of devotion to them and appreciation, takes them to a nearby kingdom, at which there is a very a very well-known kingdom, very wealthy kingdom, and has an amazingly beautiful daughter named Sita. And Sita apparently was found in the furrow of a plow, uh, somehow magically appeared, and it, it, it turns out that she herself is an incarnation of Lakshmi. And so you have Vishnu and Lakshmi, the kind of cosmic pair, avatars on the earth who are meant to come together. It's all a path. And remember, this is really important. This idea of paths and dharma, your path, your meant path, is very important in Indian system because it's obviously a caste system. So if you're a Brahmin or a priest, you have one path. If you're a warrior like Rama, you have another path. It's not, it's not your choice anymore. You're born into something, you must follow that path wherever it may lead. And Rama, of course, carries him to, into the forest, through the rakshasas, and onto Sita. Now, there's always a catch with love and devotion. You cannot just simply meet your betrothed. You have to perform some unbelievable feat. And so the king of where Sita is based, her father says, whoever can string this massive and cumbersome bow will be the suitor to which Sita can become married. And so, of course, Rama steps up to the plate, being all muscular and masculine and being an avatar of Vishnu. He has supernatural powers and easily strings the bow and thus he is betrothed to Sita. And so we see this cosmic order again reuniting, reuniting, coming together. Sita, Rama, Lakshman, Lakshmana return to Ayodhya to great fanfare and they live there for approximately 14 years until again the cosmic order becomes unsettled. And there's a great quote in the Ramayana. It says, like a vena or a stringed instrument, instrument without its strings, like a chariot without a wheel. We always see this balance kind of tilting or incorrect, and it's, you have to return it into uh, equilibrium. And so Rama is the slated to be, he is the son, the much-loved son of Ayodhya. He's slated to be the next king. Unfortunately, uh, the king of Ayodhya has multiple wives. And one of the wives is particularly, she's not so happy that Rana, Rama is going to become the king. And what she says is, I want my son to become the king. And she convinces the king of Ayodhya that Rama and Lakshmana must be banished into the forest. 
and that her son will become the king. And so he does so to great despair. He feels an obligation to his wife. Uh, he's made promises to her, and so he has to fulfill those promises. Rama and Lakshmana move into the forest, have a rather idyllic life, hanging out in the forest, meeting their monkey friends, and enjoying themselves, the fruits and pleasures of the forest. However, one day, a golden deer appears, and the golden deer leads off Rama and Lakshmana deeper into the forest, away from Sita, uh, Rama's betrothed. And Rama says to Sita, I'm going to create a circle. Do not step outside of this circle, or you, you can become vulnerable to the Rakshasas. And Rahwana, who has developed a bit of a liking, a bit of a keenness, a bit of an eye for young Sita. And so Lakshmana and Rama wander into uh, the forest following this deer, and what, what happens but Rahwana descends in a different form, and he entreats her outside the circle, and when she does that, immediately he takes her and takes her to his castle in Lanka, or Sri Lanka as we know it today, and thus begins this great effort by Rama and Lakshmana to return Sita, to bring her back, to uh, take care of Rahwana and bring her back into their fold. And what they do is they enlist their monkey friends, Hanuman, Sugriva, who become these really important characters in the Ramayana and really important characters anywhere the Ramayana is loved. You can see Hanuman in particular and Sugriva, they turn up everywhere in Bali, in Thailand, in India, they're much loved characters. And Hanuman takes it upon himself. Rama says, okay, Hanuman, I need you to go to Lanka and I need you to see if Sita's alive and I want you to bring her a talisman to show her that I am alive. And so Hanuman makes himself gigantic, takes a big step from India to Lanka, and then immediately turns himself into a diminutive rat or mouse so he can come wander along the streets and try and find Sita. Very helpful business. Being a god is not so bad after all. He finally finds Sita. He wanders into her cell where Rahwana is, is keeping her and where Rahwana has tried to entreat her to, to fall in love with him. But as many of us know, you know, getting somebody to fall in love with you is more complicated and difficult than it may seem. And so he hasn't had any luck with her at that point. And uh, Hanuman wanders into there to the cell and he says, here's a small uh, kind of talisman to let you know that Rama is still alive and that we are coming to rescue you. Now, what's interesting is wherever the Ramayana went, it changed. It was absorbed by local culture in a different particular way. And when the Ramayana went or moved to Java in the 10th century, it was translated differently. And it, some of the parts were changed. And so in the Indian epic, it's just a small kind of talisman of Rama's love. In the Javanese, or Ramayana Kakuin, it is actually a letter, which is quite beautiful and elegant. And so it portrays this different way of seeing the Ramayana in Java as opposed to India. And remember the Ramayana would then go to Bali and in the 16th century all the way to, the, to today, different interpretations and translations keep on taking place. Ra, uh, so when Hanuman enters a cell, she gives her the small item or the letter, whichever version you want to, uh, want to relate. And then she gives Hanuman a comb to indicate that she's still alive and that she's waiting for Rama to come and to rescue her. And so he does with great force, with Rama, Lakshmana, the monkey army against Rahwana and his evil ogres and Rakshasas. They come and they battle and ultimately it's down to 
Rama and Rahwana. And Rama keeps on cutting off his heads one after the other. He cannot kill this cumbersome demon one after the other until he finds the kind of the place where his death hides is the way it's described in the book. And often it's said to be on the back of his heel, his belly button, or behind his ear. Wherever it is, Rama finds it and kills him. And the great battle comes to an end. But this is not the end of the story. Rama is conflicted because while he loves Sita, and cosmically he is meant to be with Sita, and they're meant to rule over Ayodhya together, he understands as well that Sita has been abducted and has been kept by Rahwana in his castle, and God knows what has happened in that castle. And so he feels very conflicted. And there's a wonderful passage in this translation. He drew a deep breath. I came to avenge Rafana's affront to me, and that I have done. For my honor and the honor of the house of Ayodhya, I came to kill him. I came because of Dharma, because of his path, his obligation. He paused. Then, as if plunging a spike of ice into her, he said, Do not think for a moment, Sita, that I came for your sake. Love is truly dead. Your name is a stain on our family. It pains me to even look at you. You can go wherever you like. I have rescued you as I swore I would. I owe you nothing more. No man of honor can take home a woman who has lived in his enemy's house for as many moons as you have. Ooh, that's cutting. Chivalry is truly dead. So we get a very, a very clear sense that, that Rama has a very clear path, and there are very clear prescriptions about how you deal with your consort. Sita has a very interesting response. Lakshmana, you have always done whatever I have asked. I cannot bear the accusation that I am tainted. Your brother has abandoned me in, has abandoned me in the midst of this crowd. I have nothing to live for anymore. When Rama t tells me to go where I please with whomever I choose, I choose to go to my death. Make a fire for me, Lakshmana, my place will be at its heart. And so essentially what happens is Rama lays down this, this implication to Sita, and Sita says, well, if I am pure, I can prove it. I will step into a fire for you. And so she does. And she steps into, Lakshmana makes the fire very reluctantly. There are tears flowing down his face. And she steps into the fire, and instead of being consumed by the fire, her Virtue is confirmed in that she kind of glows in this otherworldly glow. And she steps out of the fire, and Rama embraces her. And they return to Ayodhya, and they live quite a long and fruitful life. The love story is finally come to an end. The rescue has happened, and they've been reunited. The cosmic order has been sustained. Now, this, this idea of cosmic order, any of you who have been to Bali before, you would have seen people offering flowers and things every morning to, in certain corners of hotels because they're the direction of, of the great sacred mountain. And this idea of cosmic order is very important in Bali. And so the Ramayana is a very central kind of tenet of, or expression of that belief that the cosmos needs to be maintained or otherwise it'll become unhinged. I mean, I think in my own personal life, about times when 
uh, contemporary life seems to have come unhinged, and recently it seems to be coming unhinged all over the place. And you could say that the cosmic order is not being attended to in the proper way it should. And so Hinduism, in some ways, is all about maintaining a good rulership, maintaining you know, the dharma that you are on, either as a warrior or as you know, rishi, a sage, or as, as a Brahmin priest in particular. And so this cloth, as James was talking about this morning, has more profound and deeper meanings than simply a narrative to be told again and again and again. It says something about Hindu life, and it says something about Balinese life that this cloth was kept for so long in such pristine condition, and it's so beautifully represented here on the wall. So I would say to you that maybe today is a day to make sure your vena has all its strings, or its chariot has two wheels instead of one, and that hopefully you find some kind of cosmic order or balance in your life today. Thank you very much. Thank you.